This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we take a trip to Bard, an Edinburgh gallery sharing Scottish craft and design. We head to the rebranded and revamped Young Victoria and Albert Museum in East London, and in New York, we learn of an innovation that resulted in paper fashion. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. To kick off today's show, we head to Edinburgh to visit a shop and gallery dedicated to craft and design made in Scotland. Bard is the old Celtic word for storyteller, a fitting name for a space that aims to share the tales of the makers behind the works on show. Let's hear now from co-founders Hugo MacDonald and James Stevens. Hello, welcome to Bard. <laughs> It's so lovely to have you here. Hugo and I are partners in life as well as in business. We've set up bars through the summer of last year um, and opened in November 2020. Hugo grew up in Scotland and having travelled a lot here through the beginning of our relationship, we were really excited to make it our home and to get to know the community of makers here. James being an architect, me being a writer, we're always interested in finding who makes what in different places. And so in the course of our travels, we'd always looked for somewhere that brings together some of the finest examples of what's being made in Scotland under one roof. And I'd always been surprised that there wasn't one destination as such. We're always finding incredible people all over the country and the islands around Scotland. And we felt that they deserved a physical platform that didn't just show their work, but also told the stories behind why they do what they do and how it contributes to the social and cultural fabric of Scotland as a whole. We also thought it was interesting and important to be showing these things in an environment that felt really domestic. So there are places in Scotland that represent craft in a gallery context, but we believe these are things to be lived with. And so showing them in a space that feels very much like someone's home is a far smaller leap for someone to be able to take something off a, an old dresser and put it onto their own old dresser than take something off a plinth. We decided to make it a journey, both physical as well as emotional and representing our, our own new exploration of Scotland, and got in the car and spent 10 weeks going around the country, meeting makers, introducing ourselves. We were really overwhelmed and, and delighted by the reception that we received from makers all over the country who we're quite hungry for the kind of representation that we're hoping to be able to achieve. We've called ourselves Bard because we're very keen to put storytelling at the front of what it is that we're doing. And it felt imperative to be able to tell someone else a story, to meet them, to be in their studios, to drink their tea, to meet their dog, and also hear about what it is that motivates them in their making. The journey was really crucial. It was a way of meeting people and showing commitment to actually go and see people where they make see the views from their studios to touch their prototypes to ask them questions about how they might like to develop their own practice and to find out if there were ways that we with Bard could help that as well we were keen to work with quite a lot of people and bring those products to market visibly in a physical space a wonderful couple on the Isle of Egg um, have a company called All About Willow where using their own organically grown willow they are interested in recreating historical pieces. 
This is a wonderful lobster pot, which they've recreated from historical images. Really interested in putting willow rather than plastic into the seas. Unfortunately, the lobster fishermen prefer the modern pots because they have hinged bottoms, whereas this one you have to put your hand in to be able to retrieve the lobsters, which is a little bit confrontational. (laughs) But we really love these as sculptural objects within the home, and we're looking at collaborating with them to create them as side tables rather than just lobster pots. There's another objective with Bard, which is to help raise a lot of people's understanding of the value of craft in life more broadly and to open up opportunities for craftspeople all over Scotland to broader platforms of commissioning, deeper engagement. I think there's this great misrepresentation that craft is something archaic or nostalgic, but craft to us is a sort of knowledge-based value system, essentially, one with great connection to social, cultural identity. The idea of storytelling, which sort of is interwoven in all aspects of what we do here, is to try and help other people connect to those stories and see that these things are not just things to look at and buy or use, although we hope that people will use everything that they buy here. They represent cultural identity in a very deep and powerful way. I think there's something very interesting about specificity, which we came across a lot in the conversations that we were having. In a global environment where anything is possible, language of material and place can often get lost. And in travelling around the country, especially into environments where travel is harder, the idea of anything being delivered next day is anathema. So something being from a specific place becomes much richer because that place is embedded into the things that are made. There's also a wonderful heritage of mending and repair for the same reason. And that kind of craft thinking, which is something we talk a lot about, also is really baked into a lot of the ways that people naturally work that we're talking to, rather than it being about something that has come from a design education or inspiration or a Pinterest board. These are the oat backs on the Orkney chairs that are made from surplus... Well, straw, literally, isn't it? When we were up there visiting, they had sack loads of straw on the floor that ducks were coming in and out of the studio, pecking at. It was a wonderful sort of chaotic pastoral scene. One of the most recognisable pieces that we have is these Orkney chairs that have these amazing woven straw backs, and the straw is a byproduct of oat agriculture that exists on Orkney. Traditionally, the wooden frame of the chair would have been made from driftwood because there aren't very many trees on Orkney. Over the years, people have started repairing chairs that have been passed down through their families with all manner of materials to hand, including sea plastic that gets washed up on beaches. And in the islands particularly, there's this incredible resourcefulness to not just living with things and using them and repairing them, but using things over the course of generations, passing them down and repairing them with whatever you have to hand at that point in time. What you end up with sort of 150 years later is a chair, not just with a beautiful patina, but there are so many stories baked into it as well. And that attention to looking after and caring for something is one of the biggest of 
differentiators perhaps between craft and design if design is about manufacturing and producing and sort of honing something to be its most functional craft there's a far greater deal of emotional resonance in it things are intended to be lived with and used and repaired and loved and all of those softer words and values it's also been really interesting physically bringing all of these things together because all of them respond to a place all of them respond to a kind of scottishness and yet it's relatively unusual to see a collection of this nature it's rarer to have the opportunity to stand back and think what does scotland look like what does scotland feel like it's a victim of its own sort of beauty in many ways isn't it i think people look at scotland and they think landscape is spectacular in its own right but quite often it's the human cultural side gets relegated as a result or people fall back on familiar tropes like tartan and highland cows iron brew and they all have their place in scottish culture but there is so much more to it as well and i think that was one of the things that we were very keen to try and bring to the surface with bard is to say you can have your iron brew and you can have your orange waked tartan hat but there's also this wonderful plaster vessels that are being made with ground up minerals from the beaches in Fife and there are ceramicists digging out clay from the old clay pits outside Glasgow and turning them into really beautiful rugged robust ceramic tableware that has a very Scottish feeling even if you wouldn't necessarily look at it and think oh that must be Scottish all of these things I think are ripe for reappraisal And it's fascinating in the months that we've been open, the number of people who come through the doors and talk about the connections that they have personally to so many of the different things that we're showing, either through previous family members who might have learnt to do a very particular stitch on a Shetland jumper, right down to creepies, which are the vernacular wooden stools, again, from Orkney and Shetland that we have here. Many of the Scottish folk who come in say that they've grown up with creepies in their houses and they hadn't seen contemporary versions of them before. Craft is something living and people are constantly sort of looking at what it means in their own context. One of the other things that grates a little bit when people think of craft or it grates with us is that it can take itself very seriously. For us, craft is something very sort of grounded and grounding. It's not something self-consciously earnest. So we were really keen to sort of bake layers of humour and light-heartedness into the entire experience, digital and physical. Sometimes that comes across in some of the weirder, more abstract products that we have, like the 3D printed ceramics by a fantastic Glasgow-based Korean artist called Surin Shin. But also we have this horrific digital fire in the fireplace here because we're not allowed to light a real fire. We have little moments. We've got piled up Tunnock's tea cakes downstairs that we give to people when they come in. Moments that hopefully help people pause and relax a little bit and feel that they're coming somewhere where they can pick things up and touch them and smell them and ask questions about them. This is definitely not a gallery with a capital G in the traditional sense where it's sort of look but don't touch and please whisper. It's somewhere that should hopefully make people kind of lower their shoulders when they come in and feel like they can sit on the sofa and pick up a stone that we have on the table and ask where it comes from. And then that conversation might lead to a deeper conversation about what these things represent too. That was Hugo MacDonald and before that, James Stevens, founders of Bard. 
to the east end of London now, where the Young Victoria and Albert Museum, or the Young V&A, has recently reopened its doors to visitors. Previously known as the Museum of Childhood, this archive that captures and records design and culture dedicated to children has undergone a radical rebrand and redesign. The aim is to create an environment that provokes less nostalgia from adults on seeing their childhood toys to one that allows young minds to wonder how they might shape the world around them. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett went to Bethnal Green in East London to meet some of the team. The Victorian building that houses the Young V&A was originally conceived as a teaching tool in its own right. Its architects hoped that the visible raw iron structure would reveal to visitors the engineering behind the project. It's a fitting location for the world's first museum of art and design, developed with and for children. The V&A's Director of Design, Estate and Public Programme, Philippa Simpson, who's been leading its seven-year development, shows me around. So, we're starting in the Play Gallery, which is really aimed at our very, very youngest visitors from 0 to 5. Um, and I think one of the most radical spaces in the whole museum is this one, which is called the Mini Museum. And this is a whole space conceived for 0 to 3-year-olds. So this is about taking the very best of the V&A collection, lowering it to ground level so the callers and the bum shufflers can get up close and personal with the different objects. And they're embedded into this incredible textured landscape. So the idea is everything in here is multi-sensory. It's about making sense of what you're seeing behind glass by feeling it. So you've got um, this amazing marble bench, which sits around this marble statue here. Um, you've got a bumpy red or dead ha handbag with a bumpy wooden bench around it. You can see, um, you know, kind of scaly snake, a fuzzy vest, a furry toy, a squidgy dog, mirrors over that. So everything is about bringing these things to life in a way that makes sense for the tiniest of visitors. The Young V&A brings together more than 2,000 objects from the huge Victoria and Albert collection. Philippa and her team turned their usual curatorial process on its head. Rather than organising items by date or theme, in the play gallery they're arranged in colours of the rainbow. We have a uh, red, orange, yellow, green and blue and purple cabinets. And there's a huge diversity of objects. Maybe you can talk me through what we might see in the blue one. Yes, where do you even begin? I know, right. So this is fantastic because this gives, I think the blue one gives you the best example of how, um, how broad it is. You've got um, bees from ancient Egypt, so over 3,000 years old, absolutely stunning. And they're alongside a blue bee muffin doll, right? Now, where else in the world do you see those two things together? But it's great because it, in a way... It sort of demystifies the kinds of things you see in a museum. So if a child comes along and is like, oh yeah, that looks like something I might have at home, then you realise that those beads were something that someone had at home, right? That was something that some, somebody wore. So yeah, it's a, it's a really lovely starting point for new visitors, new yeah. generation of museum addicts, I hope. <laughs> As well as historical objects, the museum displays completely ordinary items and encourages its young visitors to see the engineering, design and creativity that goes into them. In one cabinet is, quite simply, a den made from chairs and sofa cushions. So we're going to start... So if you have your paper, this is portrait. Philippa's team have worked hard to make objects behind glass interactive while protecting them from damage. 
The collection spans 2,500 BC to the present day. One gallery asks children to invent an adventure story using the familiar and unfamiliar objects on display. It makes for some wonderfully incongruous combinations. It's not often you see an ornate 18th-century wooden mask from Tibet alongside Spice Girls Barbies. Children are encouraged to engage with the young V&A in their own novel ways. There's no single fixed route or way to consume the exhibits. Here's museum director Helen Charman. And over the last two years, we've worked with over 22,000 children, young people, their families in the locality, um, building our programmes, testing out our ideas, learning with and from our children, so that we know that when our doors open, it's those local audiences who already have a real sense of um, ownership, actually, of the space and who have created so intrinsically and fundamentally to creating Young V&A. And one of the prioritised groups uh, for the Young V&A is Generation Alpha. Who is Generation Alpha and why were they such an important focal point for the Young V&A? So Generation Alpha are children born um, in or after 2015. They are the next generation. Um, we did lots of research actually into their interests, their characteristics, their needs. Obviously we also then work with them through the co-design process. And they are a generation who are really engaged in the world, their own worlds, the wider world. They're engaged in the issues that occupy um, society. They are interested in a return to craft and making. Um, they're a very informed generation. And also they want somewhere, as uh, so we learn through the co-design process, that's full of joy and optimism. Uh, a museum where you roll up your sleeves, you get stuck in there's loads to do uh, you design you play you imagine you leave the museum you know full of your own creative confidence creative confidence is on display as philippa and i are turfed out from an amphitheater space by one group of school children putting on a spontaneous play in an impromptu way i'm going to get out of the way because this is absolutely nuts i love it as much as the team at young vna respect historical objects the museum was also designed with respect for its visitors children and adults alike Parents and teachers can help younger children interact with objects through written prompts. There's plenty of seating to rest tired legs. And the design team hasn't scrimped on materials just because their audience is young. Philippa tells me more as we stand beside a gold leaf arch. So all the way through, working with children, looking at materials, what we wanted to do is have a materiality that felt like it was infused with value. It's like we want to do the best things, make the best things with the best materials for our most important visitors, who are the young ones, rather than thinking, oh, well, you know, it's for kids, we can just, like, you know, make it out of anything. There's something about that kind of subconscious message that we really value there. Designed with collaboration and care, Young V&A is putting history on display while looking to the future. For Monocle in London, I'm Lillian Fawcett. Fashion has always been driven forward by innovation in materials science. These days, much of the focus is on developing sustainable materials. But back in the 1960s, paper and chemical companies started making disposable clothes as a promotional stunt. This short-lived burst of innovation is explored in Generation Paper, a fashion phenom of the 1960s. It's a show that's on at the Museum of Arts and Design in Manhattan. Monocle's Henry Rees Sheridan went along to meet Elisa Author, Deputy Director of Curatorial Affairs at the museum. Elisa began by outlining how the paper fashion fad took hold. 
So this is an exhibition that focuses on the paper dress, which was a phenomenon, short-lived phenomenon of the 1960s, really spurred by uh, paper companies and chemical companies attempting to produce new products for the home and other kind of industrial commercial purposes. They were very interested in coming up with something that was, they labeled disposable. They saw that as a utopian, progressive invention. Nowadays, we'd never use the words utopian and disposable in the same sentence, but this was a time in the 1960s, you may recall the slogan, better living through chemicals, and that's really where that comes from. Um, I love this exhibition because it brings together both the material science of the time, material culture, uh, youth consumerism, fashion, and design history. So it brings together very interesting constellation of forces that really came from creative entrepreneurship on the part of these chemical companies and paper companies where they used fashion as the launching pad for new inventions. So it was essentially like marketing content for chemicals companies, including I think the most prominent one mentioned on the wall there is like the Scott Paper Company, which is now most famous for manufacturing toilet paper. Is that correct? Yeah, it did begin with the Scott Paper Company. They launched a promotion, a mail-in promotion, where you could pick one of two so-called paper dresses. Um, one was an op art pattern, the other was a bandana. They marketed it during a Junior Miss beauty pageant, but it was really about getting a new invention, a new paper invention into people's homes. So nowadays, this particular paper was, you know, we can still find it in especially like artist studios or industrial sites where it's a kind of a thick, very thick paper towel. Uh, this was a promotion that ended up people sending in uh, like, you know, maybe a dollar twenty-five for one of these dresses and they had given away half a million uh, within just a few weeks. I feel the term paper is possibly slightly misleading because I'm looking at the clothes on the mannequins around me now and the, the textile that the, the clothes are made out of, it doesn't, it's not like printer paper or crepe paper, right? It looks like its properties resemble like conventional fabrics and textiles a bit more. Yes. So the term paper is a bit of a misnomer. You're right. It is a non-woven material. So these are papers or materials that are made with cellulose pulp and then pressed sometimes into a nylon scrim to give it strength so it can't be ripped or spun bond. So that's another way of getting these very thin non-woven textiles. And then we have one example in the exhibition that is actually a plastic extruded yarn or string or thread, which is knitted. So we have one example of a knitted dress, but for the most part, these are pressed or spun bond, and that gives them their, their strength. Um, they can be cut, but they can't be torn. They can be manipulated into all different types of patterns um, in terms of the dress form. Although you'll notice in this exhibition, it's primarily the A-line that is um, what you see, what the designers are using. Um, some of them are wood pulp, others are a, another kind of organic pulp, which is chemically dissolved, and that gives you the material that is then pressed onto the scrim, and that's essentially what these papers are. They do resemble paper towels, very, very thick paper towels. There are others that resemble maybe the consistency of a dryer sheet. And if you've ever looked closely at a dryer sheet, you'll notice that's not a woven 
uh, material. It is something that is spun bond or pressed, and so the fibers themselves are, are not aligned um, like you would find a textile that's woven on a loom. They're at a random pattern that gives this very sort of strength, a strength to the, the textile. So these, these textiles started as like promotional kind of novelties, uh, but they were taken on and, you know, applied in industrial contexts. I think one, one application that I'm particularly interested in is the uh, flight attendant uniforms. We can talk about those. These were made, um, designed by Elisa Daggs. They are much, much more elaborate in terms of their pattern, in terms of their cut and the way they're sewn. They have ruffles, they have belts, um, they're metallic. The ones that you see here were made for a promotion of international, for international travel. Um, and so this was part of a package. You could hear, if you were going from New York to Paris, you would hear French music, you would eat French food, you would have access to French magazines and movies. And if you were in first class, the flight attendants would change into one of these metallic, very beautiful, sexy metallic dresses for cocktails and to serve dinner. And then, obviously, they're meant to be thrown away. You could also buy one if you wanted to take it with you and wear it in Paris. They were meant to be worn maybe two or three times, then thrown away. All of these dresses are treated with flame retardants because, of course, everyone smoked. Nowadays, you know, we know that that was carcinogenic uh, properties that were put onto the, these and other um, like children's uh, Halloween costumes, for instance, those flame retardants were covered with everything. They weren't particularly comfortable. Um, and then, of course, with the rise of the environmental movement in the late 60s, the idea of the disposable, something that you would only keep for two or three uses and then just simply throw away, became less and less legitimate or tenable. And so you see the decline. But for this, you know, the mid-60s through the late 60s, companies really jumped on the bandwagon in terms of using these products and these dresses um, for promotional purposes. And did any fashion designers really make a mark or make a name for themselves, specifically working with these kinds of paper materials? Yes, there were designers who had collaborated with companies like DuPont using Rime, and they made very, very elaborate, um, what you could call couture garments, right? They're one of a kind, they're hand-sewn, some of them were hand-painted rather than printed. So there are a number of examples of artists using those. I mean, probably the most, the person who pops to mind immediately is someone like Paco Rabanne, who used a lot of paper in his designs. But there were others, most often for like one-off galas or events. One of the interesting kind of uses of this material in the context of fashion is, you know, it being paper, you could kind of print Mm -hmm. relatively high-definition images yes. on it, and, and that could be used both for kind of just purely aesthetic purposes, but also uh, used for promotional purposes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So a good example of that is the graphic designer Harry Gordon, who released five uh, poster dresses, that's what they were called. These were still, you know, simple A-line shifts, but they had beautiful graphics. Um, we're looking at one with um, Bob Dylan's face. There's only 50 of those made because that's a very famous photograph of Bob Dylan, and once he saw it sort of out and about, was not particularly happy with that. Um, there's another one here that shows an Allen Ginsberg poem um, on the palm of a hand and a beautiful Surrealist-inspired single eye in the front of the dress. So they're, they're graphically very, very striking. Obviously, uh, like the patterns and a lot of the images are kind of mm -hmm. 
very evocative of like kind of classic 60s age of Aquarius hippy dippy aesthetics but these clothes were being manufactured by you know mid-century post-war petrochemical kind of giants of industry right yeah that's true I should also say the poster dresses were released in London and there were instructions that came with them that once you had worn them um, you could repurpose them as posters in your bedroom what if any, were the ripple effects of this relatively short-lived movement in design and manufacturing, you know, are, are there any designers working today who harken back to it? Did any of the materials developed during this period remain in use, or was it really kind of just a flash in the pan? I think that there are papers that resemble these. Like I mentioned, the dryer sheet, there's heavy industrial paper towels that you find in mechanics office or, you know, sort of garages and artist studios. There's also PPE. I mean, that's where all of that comes from. Um, a lot of these companies were looking to get into a sort of medical uh, environment. You know, it was all uh, cotton. They were washing massive amounts of cotton. Um, and so, like, surgical nurses were very interested in this time, in this transition to disposable materials um, that could be better, you know, germ-resistant, et cetera, and easier to manage in terms of the labor of cleaning up, say, a surgical unit. That was Elisa Author, Deputy Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Museum of Arts and Design in New York. She was speaking to Monocle's Henry Rees Sheridan. The exhibition, Generation Paper, a fashion phenom of the 1960s, is on until the 27th of August, 2023. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra. That airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylie Evans, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.